Hello everyone. Welcome to LTV Talks, a podcast where I have conversations with industry leading experts and practitioners in the field of life cycle marketing and subscription optimization. Today we have Alison with us. Uh, Alison is a senior life cycle marketer at 10% Happier. She was actually the founding member of the team. So she uh, so we are going to talk a lot about like how what it means to to start a team from scratch, um, you know, put all the strategy in place etc. but currently Alison is of course building marketing infrastructure for the next phase of the company's growth including product marketing managing their SEO agency market sizing etc uh, she's been there for four and a half years which is a lot longer than the usual life cycle uh, manager I, i see or interact with at at different companies so she comes with like tons of experiences in the company just taking them from you know building everything from scratch up until up until today where she has so many case studies that every time i google alison i feel like i come across one uh 10% happier for those who don't know is a meditation app with a very quite a unique story and uh, as soon as you google it you will find the story itself so i won't go into the details of it but in 2014 dan harris uh, published a memoir that that also was like a beginner's guide to meditation um and it became such a hit that that eventually evolved into a bunch of like podcasts and the app itself um but yeah with that elson welcome to the show thank you karan it's so nice to be here get to chat yeah finally we 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 have been talking about doing this uh, for quite some time now uh so it's nice that it finally came around and we're doing it in a in a sunny day in berlin at least oh nice um, going to be honest uh, but, it's a cold day in providence so I'm I'm soaking <laughs> in your sun. <laughs> okay, that's good. That's good. Uh Elson, why don't we start off by just by understanding more about like where you know how you how you started working at 10% uh, happier and you know how did you get into this role? Why CRM, right? Like just give us a give us your story. Yeah, so prior to 10%, um I worked for about 5 years in fundraising for nonprofits. So I was at the at the organizations I was at I was at the Audubon Society and at Brown University and I was an email marketer. And so I uh really had like all all the sort of depth of depth of knowledge but also very specifically on the nonprofit side you are in many ways uh like kind of separated from the rest of the organization right because you're raising money and other folks are taking the money spending it all spending it on the programs the work um and i i was i was really starting to be at a place where i was like oh i want i really want to dig into the entire journey that somebody has with this organization and even though i'm like really i'm loving email marketing i'm you know getting to do a lot of really fun stuff run a lot of really fun tests i just felt actually like like i wasn't getting that full like life cycle experience that full user journey experience that i that i wanted to and so i started looking around and trying to figure out okay where can i do this you know Obviously I worked for nonprofits I'm a pretty like mission driven person. Um and I I actually met up on the Email Geek Slack. Shout out if anyone's from there. Um with my uh my current boss and we started talking and she was at 10% happier. Um and I I just started start talking to them I was like, "Oh, this is really exciting. This is a founding founding life cycle position. It's for a really interesting uh and like complex topic uh and and just like kind of fell in love and was like all right i'm in 
you know, let's go. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I, I'm, you know, and I was coming from a group, you know, being in a fundraising organization of 200 people to being right. on a team of, I think I was number 30 when I was hired. Okay. Well, and how big is the company now? Like what, what size uh, is the company now? I think it depends on how you, it, it depends on some part-time folks. I believe we're at like 45. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah. Uh, and and what, what does it mean, right? Like when you when you walk into the room and you're like, okay, by the way, here's life cycle. Go do what you can. Like what did it look like, right? Did you have, a, uh, just to put us into your shoes, right? Like for uh, put me in your shoes rather, uh, is, is more like, you know, do you walk in with no tech, uh, tools already in place? Do you walk in with like no idea of what you want to do? Or like what was the brief there? Yeah, so I I was uh I was pretty lucky on the tooling front. Um the uh 10% when I joined had just switched from um a combination of Mailchimp and Intercom to Braze. So I had uh I had a lot of options in terms of you know, uh being able to message cross channel uh in the app and push in email. But really when I came in, my like MO day one first thing that I'm working on was mapping the customer journey right because in crm you know you you could do anything there are a million test ideas there are a million things that you could change um there are there are usually kind of like a bunch of different priorities that crm can help with right because you you touch the whole journey and so really the first thing that i did was i sat down and uh worked with uh, performance marketers, worked with um, meditation teachers was actually a really interesting angle that I got to work with right away and was really fun was I like sat down with one of the one of the meditation teachers on staff and talked to talked to him and said, hey, when someone comes to 10% happier, like, what's the experience we want them to have? You know, I I am not a meditation teacher and my uh, bench was pretty Mm. shallow on meditation knowledge at that point. So I needed to talk to him and hear like, what does it actually look like for someone to be a successful meditator and like get out of our product what they what they came here for? Um, and I happened to be joining the team at a really good time because our product manager at the time, now VP of product, um, Eva Breitenbach, was uh, kicking off a pretty a pretty robust um, user journey. Uh, it, it was really it was really like. It was a user journey mapping project. It was sort of being used for something else, but I got to immediately come on board and spend a lot of time talking to users about how they came to the product, what their experience was, you know, within the first few days, what their experience was long-term, like talking to folks who had successfully gotten out of our product and meditation, what they, what they wanted or had got something totally new that they had not expected. And Mm -hmm. so that was sort of step one was like, understand how people find us, what they need from us uh, and, and what success looks like and where those areas of friction are that people can drop off. Uh, And then from there, I'd say there's sort of two things that I needed to do as a life cycle, sort of like first, first founding life cycle member was Mm -hmm. really understand the customer journey, understand what the company goals were, and how to prioritize sort of those two together, understand what life cycle is really good at and like where mm-hmm. life cycle can have an impact in the customer journey 
And then I needed to communicate that to the other folks that I was working with who hadn't necessarily worked with a lifecycle marketer before or hadn't worked with like me at this company um, because mm-hmm. so much of the work that we do as lifecycle marketers is so collaborative, right? Like that's one of my favorite parts about it. You're going to work with product. You're going to work with, you know, content experts or customer success or support um, and sort mm-hmm. of establishing those baselines for how you work together. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, uh, that's why CRM is really the backbone of, of anything you do in the product, right? Uh, if, if, but also to feed that uh, user insights and user feedback to the product teams or to the data team, right? It's, it's like a two-way street almost uh, when it comes to these kind of companies. Absolutely. And one of my favorite things to do as a CRM person um, <laughs> is to work with the product team and basically say, hey, I've got some insights. I'm feeding them back to you. You've probably got, you know, you've definitely got some insights that you're feeding back to me. Do we have any product hypotheses mm. that we could test in CRM? Uh, like if, if you think that personalization of, uh, you know, the first, the, this is an obvious example, personalization of what meditation content is recommended to people in their first seven days with the product, mm. we can, CRM can go build a test that does exactly that um, and tell you if that seems to make any difference in, say, trial conversion or engagement or, you know, the rate that people meditate. And you and you can get that data before you had to build anything with Edge. Like, we can save you a lot of time. Uh, I think that's often a really good way to sort of, like, embed yourself when you begin within, uh, within the product org and, like, really get a seat at the table. <laughs> Yeah, that's so true. And for example, even in the last few episodes, the people that I've spoken to keep reiterating this fact um, across different companies. So I think like, you know, if you look at five years ago versus today, I feel this is gaining much more momentum now versus five years ago where it might have been completely, completely different. And a lot of product managers still have that notion of how much CRM can do for them in terms of they usually think of it as marketing comms but they don't know that now we can do so much more with the tech that we have at hand and so I'm curious to know like when you started working with these uh, with these teams did they feel like okay you know did they perceive CRM as a content field or a creative field where you were you know you were trying to uh, make users aware about what what your offering was or was it also a bit more growth driven in the sense that uh, we don't have this funnel that's performing very well what can CRM do here etc yeah I think luckily the product folks that I've worked with they're just so oriented to thinking about the user journey and thinking about growth funnels in those ways so you know certainly there's certainly there's like education to be done to sort of remind folks like like what I was just talking about, you know, that we are also a team that is coming up with hypotheses about the user journey and running experiments and getting information mm. back. You know, we're not just, te- our job is not just to like tell folks what, what, you know, we're not just doing feature announcements, you know, we're, Absolutely. Uh, we're, we're actually, uh, we, we're, we're actually experimenting as well. But the, the thing that's been interesting is helping folks understand like where like where in that funnel is life cycle effective for example uh i worked a lot with a colleague a couple of years ago in in product um she was working on with our uh 
our library of meditations. And uh, she was, she and I were working together on, you know, okay, we're going to be, we know that we know that we want to release X number of new meditations over the next Y, Y months, um, because we think that's important to retention. Uh, right. That sounds obvious. It is. But, but there was a, uh, you know, she was really trying to figure out, okay, I think we have a discoverability problem in the app. And, and from my perspective, I'm like, there's some things that CRM can do to affect a discoverability problem mm-hmm. in the app. There's a, actually a lot that we can't, right? We know if we direct relevant segments of our audience to, uh, when we tell them about these new meditations about chronic pain, for example, mm-hmm. um, like we, we know uh, that more people are going to go play them, right? Like that's, that's part of it. But, but, what we, but what we ended up sort of working together on was like, oh, you know, which of these, which of these meditations should some of them be behind the paywall? Should some of them be outside, outside of the paywall? Mm -hmm. How is she actually going to measure the impact of placement in the app as it relates to how these meditations are doing when we're also directing traffic from outside the app? Um, You know, there's, I think there's a like, there's basically some assumptions, tricks of the trade and like stuff that we know about how people interact outside the app that I've found PMs just because they're in a, a different area might, might know less about. And so that was kind of an interesting mm-hmm. project, honestly, from a data perspective to figure out like, okay, how are we going to actually like measure if these new meditations are impactful beyond just, Hey, we communicated about them to a segment that we think cares about them. Uh, and like, we kind of know that that's going to work, you know? So it's, it's kind of, I feel like it's more like having the conversations with folks to say, okay, well, like life cycle and CRM can contribute in this way. Uh, what is, what is product actually trying to like learn and experiment with? Uh, what is life cycle trying to learn and experiment with? Cause at the same time, you know, the product has some experimentation goals. We had some experimentation goals as well. And like, how do you see those two things overlap and how do you like keep your data clean enough to know the outcomes uh i know it's it's been interesting and i think you know on a similar note just to show the bad side of it it, i was once working with a company who had brace and Mm -hmm. as we all know brace is brace is pretty powerful right and they it can do a lot of good things in a very reliable way and Basically, when we started with like our experimentation efforts, just via CRM, we saw many good growth results. So we we saw a lot of resurrections. We saw our activation rates getting higher and higher just because they moved from having nothing to having something, right? Mm -hmm. So Nudge's work, um, everyone knows that, right? And that's part of what Lifecycle, you know, what Lifecycle brings to the table, right? Mm -hmm. But then... At some point, because they saw that numbers, they treated life cycle as product growth. So then they were like, okay, last week we grew 10%, right? Activation rates. Why is this week only at 3%? And what people don't understand about it is that actually, uh, and to your point, life cycle is an optimizer, right? Or life cycle CRM, right? Whenever I say life cycle or CRM, (laughs) I think it's interchangeable (laughs) right now at this point. But yeah, these are these are optimizers, right? So you still need a product that people do want to come back to. And then to your point, discovery and adoption of certain features could could gain a lot if you have the right 
uh, CRM mix. But then it's not like CRM could carry that weight of of discovery or or weight of uh, making sure that everyone gets to certain content uh, just why just because of CRM, right? There needs to be a lot of other things involved as well. Yeah, that's so true. And I will say it when I started at ten percent, being able to communicate the scale of potential lifecycle improvements was a skill I really had to build because hmm. my colleagues because they weren't, you know, expert in that, uh, didn't, they really didn't know what to expect. And I was also, like I said, fairly new to life cycle at that point. So I, I spent a lot of time like, you know, uh, in talk, talking to other life cycle folks or, um, on like the email geek slack or the Lenny slack or, or growth, growth marketing areas to try to be like, okay, like, how like how much juice is actually in this hmm. orange that I can squeeze out of it from like, you know, and, and it ended up being really interesting, right? Because people might think like I came on and was directed, uh, given some direction on like, hey, free user conversion is like a top priority for us and did a hmm. ton of work there. And then like a year later <laughs> was like, huh, uh, I don't know that this is the most effective use of my time. You know, there's, uh, mm-hmm. there are these other areas that it is going to be more profitable to optimize. If like right. CRM is like, you know, one, a one to 10% increase there, are like go do that one to 10% increase on the most lucrative parts of the funnel. Um, mm-hmm. And like, let, let growth marketing or performance marketing, you know, really change the game. Uh, up, you know, up funnel or let product find, you know, find things that are going to be like, uh, inflection points in growth in the product itself and like help them do that. Uh, but I I just think you're so right. The, just the like level of the expectation setting that you need to do for what lifecycle can do is so, so important. Otherwise you're (laughs) going to be like lost. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, that brings me to to another question, right? Like, which is just around when you joined the team to now, which is four and a half years later. How did the, you know, what were some of the changes you went through, both from, like, if there were team changes, that of course, like, right, like, how did how did your priorities change over time in terms of, let's say, just if we take the basics of CRM, right? Like, if we talk about segmentation or if we talk about the you know, the content that works, or we talk about the reporting, right? In any of these domains, how has that those areas progressed over the last few years? Like, you know, what would you look back at for your, you know, younger Alison and, and look at her and say, why are you doing this? You know, like, or you just don't get it, do you? <laughs> you know, so what would be some of those things? Yes. Um, oh, so many. Um, I think that there's prioritization. I sometimes feel like is the most important skill in like any business context. And it is something that I feel like I have like, there are some skills I feel like that you sort of like linearly or, you know, linearly improve with or get better at for a while and then sort of taper off and then maybe get better at. And I think the the one thing that like, but really it's the one thing in the last four years where I'm like, oh yeah, I look back at 
person who's just starting at 10%. And I, and I, and I see her and I'm like, oh man, uh, you really, you really have, you're, you're developing your intuition for prioritization, right? Like Mm -hmm. you're working with, you're working with a team and you're, uh, just a little more junior and you're more reacting to, uh, what, what folks are asking of you, um, Mm. rather than, and and it was kind of silly because I'm like, I had, I had all the information at the time and I have much more information now. That's, that's actually been really, really helpful is, um, you know, uh, after doing a lot of user research and after doing a lot of experimentation, now I feel like my gut is really good in terms of Mm. being able to choose between different tests. And actually it's, it's been really fun over the past four-ish years. Um, uh, for a while I, I was, I was a one person shop for two years and then I spent a year, um, using or uh, having hired and working with, um, a freelancer to do a lot more of the execution because the business was growing. Our product areas were growing. We had a, a time period where we were like a bit more of a, um, we made a big investment in podcasting, a time period where we made, um, another investing, another investment in a coaching product. Um, so we, uh, there, there was basically like a time where it was like two years getting my feet, getting my feet under me, setting up all the basic flows, then a year where we were doing a lot of expansion, I needed help with execution. And then over the past year, year and a half, I brought on another full-time lifecycle marketer. Um, they've seen Montoya, who is a rock star. And so being able to understand, uh, where to deploy all of those resources and how to like, almost exactly what I was talking about earlier, right? Looking at something and saying, hey, we know that CRM is uh, a force multiplier, but it's only like, but like on the realm of like, you know, 10, maybe if you're lucky, 20%. We should be focusing on, uh, we should be focusing that energy on where that's going to matter the most. And that often is things like, you know, maybe trial conversion. We may have a 50% trial conversion rate. If you can, get that up to 55%, that's really going to make a difference in revenue um, versus mm-hmm. changing your free user conversion rate from like 1% to one and a half percent. Like that's yeah. actually harder, right? Um, yeah. And might actually have less impact. So like the, the, the biggest thing that I see, I, I like look back in my younger self and see is like, uh, you know, really wanting to like pull that prioritization forward. And then like, Make it clear and make it clear to your colleagues what you're doing, and uh, make sure you get the resources to actually execute on those because you because th- that's where you're going to see the impact. Yeah, yeah. There's a few things, by the way, like just on what you said, right? I feel like I have seen such a big change in terms of people talking about whenever you used to speak to lifecycle managers a few years ago. Or even now, you 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 know you come across a lot of CRM uh, folks who are who are still who would still prefer to work on a one month long onboarding journey, mm-hmm. having no clue about the impact. But mm-hmm. then when I hear folks like yourself, and you know you're talking about exactly this, right? Like exactly how you prioritize where where are the bets where you you can get some business outcomes. It's still very rare to see, and it's uh, it always surprises me that you know. CRM is definitely one of that field um, that where we can have that impact as long as you prioritize well. 
and the other thing is just on your gut feeling right like you've been at the company for four and a half years and i i think like that that brings so much value in terms of all these user insight all this you know all this time spent on uh, understanding what your users really care for and then developing a gut feeling over the period of time as well right i think uh, me as a consultant i have uh, you know very typically less time to do this so i i always appreciate people who've been at companies longer and who might know so much more than i do so i have my own process of, of doing this quickly like you know the hard and fast way which is not to use chat gpt by the way but still it's it's a it's a fast way um and i feel the case studies that you you put out there and we can we can talk about one right now but i think like that is something that is very uh, driven by these kind of user insights as well right so even if we talk about retention case studies or or resurrection that you had um, i'd be keen to know like how how you've used those kind of insights to drive initiatives that create impact right so for for example if you could just give us a few examples as well i know you have so many case studies in your back pocket elson so any one of them is would be would be great awesome yeah and then I'll, then i'll pick one that's fun for me um now so <laughs> what what comes to mind when you say that um we at 10% have uh, an engagement mechanic that we've used quite a bit um and that everyone uses all over, um, which is that of challenges, right? So for us, it's a meditation challenge. We're going mm-hmm. to, uh, you know, talk to our users and say, "Hey, for the for the first fourteen days of January, can you meditate for at least ten of them?" And we're going, and we have um, a course that we have set up that is going to have a, a video interview with an expert and then a paired meditation, so that you can learn you can learn about the skill you're trying to cultivate. Uh, mm-hmm. Some like self compassion, for example, and then you do a meditation where you actually sit with and 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 are actively trying to apply self compassion in your life, as an example. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, that was a those challenges. I mean, they're very common in general, um, uh, but we were finding them to be very effective. Actually, across a lot of things, they were kind of a good multi tool for us, um, uh, especially around engagement um, and retention. Uh, and and actually that that was sort of the original positioning of them was about you know hey these are really great for getting people back in the app and meditating and i was working with um a product manager uh on on this pro on one of these projects and one of the things we were trying to figure out was okay great we get you back in the app you're meditating you're here for the challenge what happens next right mm-hmm. Uh, like, can we, can we help people keep that momentum going over time? And so I was doing some work, uh, to try to, I was, I was basically just looking at the data and trying to figure out like, what do people actually do after Mm. the challenge? Right? Like, okay, you came in, you did this bespoke course, like, and assuming for people on the happy path who did then come in the next day or the next week, what were they doing? And I looked, Mm. uh, I looked back at the the initial data before we'd done any experimentation was like, huh, a lot of these people are just replaying sessions they've already played or they okay. are, uh, and they skipped a, ske- a session and they're, and they're during the like 14 day period and they're going to go back and play that one. I was like, okay, cool. That makes sense. Is it possible that what's happening here is that it's just the topic that's interesting like someone came in for our tra- our challenge that's called taming anxiety for example like mm. 
Is it just that they really care about anxiety and what we should be surfacing for them is more anxiety related content? Um, mm. So we ran uh, a, we, we ran an experiment at, uh, during our next challenge and we created a new, a new bespoke like collection of meditations be on the same topic as the challenge. Um, sort of be that that we could point people to after the challenge to see like, hey, is um, is like is our hypothesis right? Do people just okay? I'm here for an anxiety. I'm here because of anxiety. I want to keep working with anxiety afterwards, and mm. almost like at the last minute, I sort of threw in another. I was like, all right, we'll just do you know a generic reengagement campaign and a reengagement campaign about about anxiety. And then at the last minute, I was like man, people really were replaying that course a lot. I'm just going to throw in a test that's like, or, you know, hey, the challenge is over. Remember, you can just go back and do it again. Um, nice. And that one that we sort of didn't expect to do very well and kind of put in, like I said, at the last minute, way outperformed the other two. Way outperformed this like new collection that we'd spent a lot of time and energy making um, mm. with new content. And we're like, okay, um, that's, you know, that's, uh, that's interesting. We can thing one. Okay. That will be our sort of new, that's our new default. When you stop doing, when, when a challenge is over that we send people back, uh, mm. and to basically to like redo the course, if, uh, to tell them that that's an option, because that's actually really much more what people want. And then I got to thinking about it and I was like, wow, people are really willing to do this multiple times. And it right. really is expensive and time consuming to create new challenges. And now we mm -hmm. have a backlog of like 10 of these. And every time we're done with them, we just kind of let them live in our archive and we don't do anything with them. What if mm -hmm. we just reran them, you know, later in, uh, you know, like a few times a year? And we didn't, you know, we were clear that they weren't new, but we gave people the opportunity to just, you know, come back to that content that they found useful and, uh, or, you know, not everyone did the challenges, have an opportunity to do them again. And then, uh, you know, ha basically like give them that re-engagement opportunity that we know is good for engagement. And so we started, we, I, I, I ran an experiment, uh, in like a couple years ago where I was like, all right, we're rerunning this challenge. Like, do people join mm -hmm. it? Do P and I, I also, at the same time, we were experimenting with trial-gated challenges versus free challenges. So I, I started, I was like, all right, let's try We'll put this behind the paywall and we'll rerun it and we'll see if subscribers like it and care about it. And we'll see if free users subscribe to get access to it. And both mm -hmm. of those things ended up being true. And then we, we had like, <laughs> honestly, one of my, one of my, this is one of my favorite like wins from my time at 10% was, was realizing like, oh yeah, like we can, this is a whole new source of revenue for us. Mm. And we're re-engaging folks without having to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on new content. And that doesn't mean that we don't make new stuff. We obviously still do, but it, we can get in front of people more often with these, mm. you know, challenge or course reruns and give them these engagement opportunities so much more. And that means they're going to meditate more and, you know, it's all sort of an upward spiral. Yeah, yeah. This is so fascinating, by the way. I think with also health and fitness apps, right? This is a very common, common notion because yeah. we have too much content, and we kind of expect that everyone, like every one of our users, 
see the content as often as we do you know because we are working on it so we are like yeah of course everyone has read this article that we have published and or you know we have everyone has gone through the course and is just like hungry for more but to your point sometimes we underestimate that right like or or we overestimate the power of of new content sometimes uh, you yeah. might be better off just working on the basics and get even to new users right like i feel uh, it's such a big conflict for all of these sort of you know the wellness space right because we uh, you're saying the same kind of stuff but you always kind you know you're always repackaging right uh, for example for health and fitness app this is definitely much more uh, much more applicable than maybe a meditation app but i think just to also talk about this point right the, where health and fitness if i tell you why drinking water is good for you it is good for you like it's not debatable it's science right and then at some point if i've said uh, i've already told you why these things are uh, the way they are then you can't generate new content per se you can just generate new ways of saying the same thing right mm. um and you can pick aspects of it right like you can talk about habits of drinking more water or you can talk about the problems of uh, why people don't drink enough water etc etc right um so sometimes yeah just all of that to say that sometimes we overplay the role of of new content and it's so so cool to hear your um, your example because i feel like sometimes you know crm can surface these insights and as you say at the company level that means a lot of great things right because they might be good acquisition source uh, where you develop these new content and you get people in in the funnel but then when it comes to retaining an engagement your point goes to show how sometimes it's, it's not just the same thing right it's just sometimes uh, you need to rely on what works and and compound on that right and double down on that yeah and i love your point that you you will discover you will discover an insight or i mean i mean that drinking water is good for you is not like a new insight but it is but you i bet i bet in that example you discovered that talking about that was people found it valuable and then you're you're repositioning it in a few different ways and using it for like I I really do think people exactly what you were just talking about forget that so much of this is is new to folks. You actually have to say things so many times in so hmm. many different ways to break through. Um, and it it can feel as it feels so weird because we've seen them so much uh, to remember. <laughs> like no, actually, uh, nobody's giving our unfortunately nobody's uh, giving our messaging as much thoughtful consideration when they receive it as we are when we write it. <laughs> yeah, so, 100%. Uh, you got you got to be okay with with experimenting to to figure out with, you know, what breaks through. Yeah. And I think like one one great example that comes to mind uh on on that same topic is, you know, sometimes sometimes when you find a content that does resonate with a with a user, sometimes that's just the way of like maybe finding common grounds with someone who's struggling to meditate right like so if someone joins your app uh, and is looking for a solution and let's say you have a piece of content or a piece of course that you feel okay this always works really well with our new users uh, then you you might have landed on something that just gets users 
going right that just hits the right frequency of uh, of how advanced it is how of how they talk or how they guide you through that meditation so sometimes it's a lot uh, it's a very difficult thing to uh, to balance right because you you still have that new content coming up and you still have all the teams telling you to promote this new content so it's it's just it's a tough balance but uh, as long as you can get to the one that is uh, optimizing for all your outcomes i think you're in a good place right yeah well, and i think it's so interesting too with the advent of just more accessible personalization with llms right mm. i'm really excited that i'm really excited to like be in this space right now where uh you know we've i feel like lifecycle marketers crm marketers are in the world of like all right, I ran an A-B test and I got a statistically significant result that, that B is preferred. But I could get a statistically significant result that B is preferred and still have, still have A be really preferred for 30% of my audience, right? Mm. Like, uh, they're, they're just a smaller segment. And being able to, like, ha- having m- many more tools at our disposal to be able to do a more of a one-to-one, like, personalized approach like it's just, yeah. it's just so exciting. And I feel like we're going to see like an explosion of tools and experiments, et cetera, in this area. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, you know, um, just to take a detour, right. I, I saw your post recently about email marketers using AI or LLMs for copywriting. And I think you, um, you made the point of, of, you know, fine tuning the models, right. With like your own, um, your own reviews or your own user insights, etc. So can you tell us a bit more about that? I am a complete newbie, by the way. Like I play around and I watch a lot of YouTube videos. I do stuff uh, on ChatGPT to uh, to try and make it work to my wishes, but especially in our context of CRM, right? Like especially uh, with copywriting and all of those basic use cases, right? Uh, but I'm yet to find out like how to do it. And I was just wondering, like that post got me interested in, in understanding what you did and you know like what were you trying to achieve and how close did you get to achieving it great question so what i was trying to achieve we ba- we have a few different i would say sort of like email email messaging templates uh at 10% that we use quite a bit for for specific purposes right like i will say i like for discounting messages for example I've been I've been at 10% for four years. I've written a bunch of subject lines. I've written a bunch of pre-header text. I've written a bunch of body copy. Um, and they're they vary, obviously, but they're uh they're really like I, I feel like I actually at this point have a really good understanding of the job that each of those pieces of copy needs to do and mm. and a, a pretty deep bench of examples of copy that does that well. And I'd been, you know, like everyone else, I've been playing around with, um, uh, with ChatGPT, and mm. uh, had actually been had done had done some other like side project work, um, with like in the OpenAI playground, et cetera. Nothing like fancy, but just just you know, uh, playing around. And I realized like, oh, th- there's there's a couple of different options where I could I could make I could just make ChatGPT better at understanding what I want if I wanted to do some brainstorming. So there were like two, there's basically, forgive me if I butcher this, there's there's basically mm-hmm. like 
two ways right now that I see with OpenAI's product that, that were interesting, right? You can, uh, option one, you can create a custom GPT. And that's hmm. really easy. Um, the interface for creating a custom GPT is quite simple. You basically go into a like plain English back and forth uh, uh, chat window where you give the GPT instructions and then you can upload documents that are part of its knowledge base. And then that GPT just like always has those instructions and documents in the background. So it's functionally hmm. kind of the same, like, you could do the same thing via just going to regular chat GPT and typing mm. in instructions plus uploading documents every time that you wanted to get answers. Um, it, I, my sense is that custom GPTs are really just like skipping a step. Yeah, it's um, like a templatized version of your queries, right? Exactly. And then the other option that I was playing around with was around fine tuning, which is uh, you're basically creating a you're putting in data points to change the model that you're working with. So I was using, um, and it's it, it was on, I think, chat GPT 3.5. Um, but I basically, mm -hmm. I basically uh, did a bunch of work to define like what is a good subject line in this context right. and then gave, and then gave chat GPT like 10 prompts and good prompts and good responses about a subject line. And then I did that again for like preheader text, body copy, CTAs, et cetera, and loaded those all into, um, into that model so that that model now is different. It has, it has examples of what, what good responses look like to these questions. And I will hmm. say that feels like pretty meaningfully better for me in terms of first draft copy that I'm getting out of, um, that I'm getting out of the model. And all of this is stuff that I have to, I still do have to edit. Um, mm -hmm. but it, it feels, it feels actually like much more efficient for, for getting first drafts of stuff that, stuff that I was like, I do know what I want. When I sit down to write an email, encouraging someone to join a challenge, like I actually, at this point, really know what I want out of that in a way that feels like, replicable with an LLM. And so it's been really mm. fun to try to like uh get the get the model to work, but it's also been fun to try to be like to try to define for myself the brief in a way that is like easily replicable. Yeah. Yeah, completely. I'm I'm very fascinated by this and I think honestly like people who use ChatGPT much much more might have might look at this and be like okay this is such a basic use case yeah but honestly like just when you sit down to get it done really because you the, because the thing is that we keep hearing these amazing things that people are doing right mm -hmm. but when you and you and so your expectation of of anything that you do with chat gpt is just so high that when you talk about the basic stuff you're like of course this is this should be easy right but when you get down to do it you realize that you need to almost break down your thought process, right? To your point, when you're saying you're breaking down that gut feeling that you have and merging it with insights and saying, okay, actually, I know that these kind of subject lines work better. Either you say that via data, right? So you can you either feed the the open rates, et cetera, click rates maybe, um, to uh, attach with different subject lines and then give more context to chat GPT. But it's, it's a mess of a project, right? Like it's, it's a... So kudos to you for for being able to do it. Honestly, like I'm still um, 
<laughs> I'm still finding it very hard to to keep it in one place and keep it very structured. Um, so yeah, still not there, but hopefully soon. Yeah, well, and I mean, honestly, to me, it, it's so funny because yes, yes, it's a great model. The hardest part is just knowing what you want and being able to clearly articulate it. And yeah. that briefing process technically is the same as the briefing process that I would do for any copywriter. It's just that I had to get sharper about it because it's a little, you know, computers are a little more literal. And it was helpful. It was actually helpful to me in my process with other folks on my team who write copy is I'm like, wow, now we have, I have a, I have a clearer brief. I have a better repository, uh, sort of across whether it's an LLM or a person or like me, I know what I want more. Definitely. And I've worked with so many agencies that I've seen that sometimes you get these, like, it's very hard to get copywriters for life cycle focused copywriters, right? So you, (laughs) you get these copywriters who, who understand what they are writing, of course, and they're very good with the language. But then sometimes they miss this context of what works as a push notification, right? And I think Mm. I I find it fascinating that if you could train a model on those kind of elements, uh, it would be very interesting. And there's a company which does that, by the way, for you, and it's called AMP. Um, So shout out to them. They they do it very well so they do it for push notifications and basically it's a it's a learning model that um whenever you send out something they are constantly learning and they are a b testing everything uh, in an automated way and at the end so right now instead of coming up with these ideas your job would then translate to becoming something where you analyze this data and say actually our users resonate a lot with all these anxiety engagement pushes that we send or uh, whenever we mention, you know, X element in the copy, it, it seems to work well. So they do all that uh, heavy lifting for you so that you can make heavier decisions. And I found, I've used it not enough number of times to say uh, I exactly get what they're, what, how they do it, but it's, it seems very powerful and it's worth checking out for anyone who's, you know, who's sort of trying to do that on their own. Yeah. Um, cool. And I think like, uh, And we took a detour there, but I think like one uh, last thing that I also wanted to get your opinion on was like, you know, when I, whenever I look through your case studies, I find one which was talking about this dip in one year retention mark, very interesting. And I feel it could be very interesting to talk about briefly today as well, because with a lot of subscription apps, you push these annual plans and you almost have have this reactive churn prevention methods right where you when someone churns you have a, a reactivation strategy to to address that but what you did with uh, with 10 percent happier is you had a proactive um, method right where you were trying to prevent churn from happening so tell us a little bit more about it i think that would be very interesting to uh, to get in as well yeah for sure so uh there was a, I'm, I'm trying to remember when this was, it was a couple of years ago, um, but we were uh, seeing, seeing a slight dip in year one retention. We are a uh, 10% happier meditation app, one year subscription to access all of the content in our, in our library. Um, we have some free content that's always mm-hmm. free, but um, the majority of folks who interact with us are, uh, who, who uh, interact with us quite a bit are, you know, paying for access to get our whole content library. Um. Mm-hmm. And we had noticed uh, a, a dip in year one retention. And so myself, um, a product manager, and 
my colleague, Matt Chan, who's our director of uh, analytics, were, were basically the, the sort of first step of this process was we, sa- we said to ourselves, huh, we are less clear than we would like about what actions actually are correlated with retention in the app. You know, mm. there's there's some obvious stuff, but we had a we had a few different hypotheses and we were like, what can we like, what are things we could leading indicators we could change so that we're not just showing up on the back end trying to reactivate or reconvert churned users, but we're keeping folks um, actually engaged for longer. And we mm. had a few different hypotheses. You know, we have different kinds of content in our app. We have podcasts. We have uh, one off what we call singles meditations. We have these video and audio courses. And we had some hypotheses about like, oh, maybe, you know, maybe folks who try a, a bunch of different types of content, ret- you know, retain better at year one. Maybe that's what we should be incentivizing. Hmm. Or maybe it's a certain threshold of engagement right when you begin. Maybe it's a th- certain threshold of engagement, um, you know, throughout your entire time with us. And uh, Matt crunched the numbers and basically told us, hey, the one thing that is predictive of renewal is activity in the app, engagement with the app in month 11. So the month before you renew. Uh, hmm. Not groundbreaking, but useful to know, right? Um, yeah. and, so, and so we were like, all right, cool. Like, what do we think? What's a test that we can run that uh, would affect that? And, you know, for a lot of these folks, I will say it was kind of tough because for a lot of these folks who were, who were um, churning, we were realizing like, oh, you... You may have done some, you may have done some meditation when you started, but a lot of these folks are like, they really weren't getting, they weren't getting super well activated right at the beginning. Um, And so Mm. we didn't have, we didn't have like a big history of engagement with particular topics or content types that we could go back to. So we thought to ourselves, okay, what do we know really re-engages people? Well, one thing is meditation challenges. Um, and so we were thinking about it and we were like, okay, we're not, we unfortunately don't have the engineering bandwidth to like create bespoke, uh, one-off challenges for people for like everyone in month 11. Uh, we just don't, we don't Mm. have the bandwidth for that. And so we thought it through and I was like, well, you know, we can kind of imitate the experience of being in a challenge just by sending you, uh, like some activation emails and some reminder emails and push notifications. Um, and we can like, let's your, our, this, this persona, right. Is somebody who subscribed to the app, maybe did a little bit of meditation like almost a year ago. Um, and, and, and now is coming up on renewal. And we were like, Oh, like, like what might they be feeling and thinking? Right. Hmm. Um, you might kind of feel like you failed honestly, you know, <laughs> like, uh, you might be in, you, you might feel like you kind of gave up on this. And we have a course, um, that we use quite a bit, um, by a meditation teacher named Joseph Goldstein called the basics. And it's, it's a very good course. It's a good introductory course, but one of the key insights in the course is you can always begin again. You, you mm-hmm. always have the option to start over basically. And so we were like, all right, we're going to pull that inside out and we're going to pull that course out and we're going to create a, you know, I think it maybe was like an eight or nine day series 
um, and have messages from other meditation teachers. We had a course with uh, Joseph Goldstein. He's a really excellent meditation teacher. And the core insight of that course is you can always begin again, right? You can always start your practice again, whether it's been a a long time or whether you've just gotten distracted in your meditation session right now. Okay. Um, you know, really like get, we didn't say this explicitly, but the like sort of implicit, uh, message was (laughs) you paid for this thing. Try, try getting something out of it before it ends. Um, (laughs) and, uh, then every day we'd send them, um, a, uh, we'd send them a message that says, Hey, you know, today's insight from the course is X, go check it out. Um, and that did, and that did, uh, bring, raise the level of re-engagement that people were having at month 11 and therefore prevent churn therefore means we don't have to, you know, go back to folks with, uh, after they've actually like already left the product and also like not for nothing, maybe don't feel great about this thing that they tried to do to improve their life, you know, really, really trying to like look at the data and see what the problem is, but then try to lead with, lead with some empathy in the re-engagement campaign for folks in this who are having this experience yeah yeah absolutely and and uh, honestly like it's such a such a good one because i feel like it's it's a very underrepresented you know theme in in subscription apps right where people are actually going through this proactive measures and trying to re-engage them because and it's it's pretty much like how you would react to your subscription coming to an end that you paid for but you didn't get a lot of value out of right so you would also appreciate it so much if the company went came to you and said hey by the way like it's your last one get the most out of this by the way right like this this amazing course um and it's actually geared towards activation or geared towards people who are trying to get back to the routine so Mm -hmm. i think it's such a nice uh nice case study that i i felt it was it, it definitely gave me a lot of ideas for for the work that i do as well and i feel like uh, i hope it gives more ideas to people who who listen to this and uh Alison, i mean it was really great chatting with you today and honestly it's, it's been a long time pending so i'm i'm so glad we did it today um any any departing thoughts anything that you're working on for as your next phase comes uh, comes along that you want to talk about Ooh, uh, you know, I think what you said earlier about seeing lifecycle and CRM as a like strategic partner in growth is is really mm-hmm. what's on my mind. You know, um, I'm working a lot more closely these days with uh, r- really like in some ways in a growth marketing role, and so it's been really helpful to basically think about like, okay, what is lifecycle marketing's job for this company right now? Right? Like Mm. where we're at right now basically is like lifecycle marketing's job is to increase the LTV of our existing users so that we can go out and acquire as many people as possible. So that, you know, that Mm. sort of like relationship, right. Between LTV and your cost per acquisition, like making sure that we are as well set up as possible, monetizing as well as possible, creating value for our users as well as possible, so that when we go out and and are looking to find uh, new users and new folks who could benefit from the meditation offerings we have, that that we're sort of like unlocked to be able to spend more money finding these folks Mm. and really find, you know, 
do the do the sort of growth experimentation we need to do to go find the people who are going to get the most out of our product. And so I, I guess my like encouragement, <laughs> what what I wish I had told my, someone had told me or I had told myself a couple of years ago. So now I'll I'll get on my soapbox <laughs> is to really make sure that um you know re- really understand what life cycle is is doing for the company as as a whole and be able to yep. prioritize with an eye to that and that, that's that's a lot of what I'm trying to do and now also working with with my colleague Steve that that we do together is, is figuring out like okay like what what does life cycle unlock from from the like top level business perspective? And I think if you are thinking that way, prioritization gets easier. You're going to be really respected um, as yeah. as a voice. You'll have a seat at the table, um, hmm. which I think is huge. I think life cycle is one of those marketing roles that sometimes can get uh, can seem a little just like executional, but really should be strategic and really should have a seat at the table. And like being part of that bigger conversation is a great way to do it. And something that uh, I wish I had invested more in earlier. Yeah, that's a, that's a very nice point, by the way. And I'll just expand a bit on it just before we, before we end it as well. I think, you know, when you, when you talk about, so there's a lot of conversations about, right? Like now people trying to, at least starting to see this as a strategic role and, I think what's now happening is you still start working with these product and growth teams. And what you start realizing is that uh, CRM is actually one of those units who are really focused on on this LTV growth from a very different perspective, right? Like, so when you're talking to product teams at, at different companies, I feel like a lot of times the conversation about is, uh, the conversation is about new features or, you know, what feature adoption, right? And there's, because you work so closely with the with the product itself and building all the things that you're building, you get attached to those things at a very granular level. Mm-hmm. So it's almost whenever, almost uh, always, whenever I talk to a product manager who is working on a feature, they are doing their best to make sure that people adopt it in the way that they want it to, right? Mm-hmm. But then that never translates into what's actually happening on the ground. So you yeah. need CRM to sort of help you get there. And that that's a role of everything involved, right? So you need to understand the user psychology, where they're coming from, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And also then have the ability to to communicate it with them in a in a way that is uh, that is respectful and that you understand them, right? So going back to your proactive churn tactic, if you if you had just thought, okay, by the way, our product is great people would definitely keep meditating, right? Like we see no reason why someone would start doing it, but then, you know, 12 months later uh, find, or 11 months later, find that they are in the same spot they were when they got the subscription. But as CRM, you have the ability to act on it. And I think that's where CRM, you know, increases that LTV just by being the only voice actually to a user at that 11 month mark, right? Because you your product teams can't talk to them anymore. Your uh, growth teams can't talk to them anymore. So it's actually CRM carrying that entire uh, user base for you. And it can do a lot, right? If I remember correctly, there was like a 57% increase in engagement of the of the case study that you mentioned. And I think you, by doing those kind of initiatives, you can just like drive 
so much more value for uh, for LTV and for your business. But then also from a growth perspective, sometimes you have these teams who are very conversion focused. So I can't tell you how many apps I I talk to who have told me that their best churn prevention tactic is offering users a discount. And they don't go beyond that, right? So they sometimes when you are very conversion focused because you are completely focused on the numbers, of course, everyone would love a discount, right? Yeah. But, the, but where CRM can optimize the LTV is to identify which of your users are maybe just hungry for engagement. And if you engage them enough, they're happy to pay the full price. Um, and so, you know, that that's also another clear line to increasing LTV uh, whenever you're also working with a conversion-focused team, right? So I think that's where CRM sort of brings everything together to actually increase LTV for your company, no matter which route your your company is at, right? Where, um, uh, where you're building new product features or you're just like too conversion-focused, um, no matter where you are in your stage that's such a good point um cool i mean alison it was great talking to you uh and thank you so much for uh for doing this today i enjoyed it a lot and i don't know what the episode would be called but i'm sure uh people would enjoy listening to it and hopefully get something uh something valuable out of it as well yes thank you this was this was a really fun conversation. I'm so glad that we got to talk. I'm so glad that you're having these conversations. Um, I might just throw in uh, that, you know, if anyone who's listening, who's being, who's founding a lifecycle team, who wants to chat about anything that you and I talked about, you know, feel free to reach out to me. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm sure I'll be tagged somewhere. You can find me. I love having these conversations. Um, so just, awesome. just putting that out there. 